0: Are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field: sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest today is Dr. Koshal Latifzai. Uh, He's the co-founder of Rocky Mountain Regenerative Medicine, RMRM, a medical clinic in Boulder, Colorado. They specialize in regenerative medicine. So we're going to talk about, you know, what's involved there. The website is rmrm.com. Pretty simple. So, uh, Kushal, thank you for coming. How are you doing?
2: Thanks a lot for having me. I'm doing great. Thank you.
1: Well, good. Tell me a bit about your your background and how you got to run this clinic or co-founded it. And then uh, I wanna ask you what the clinic does.
2: Yeah, just to give you a little bit of a background on myself. I went to school, and started that out at University of Missouri where I double majored in biology and political science. And then for medical school, I went out to the East Coast. I went to Dartmouth Medical School and stayed out there for residency as as well. My training was at Yale University and I specialized in emergency medicine in particular. And afterwards I moved to Colorado about 10 years ago And along with another physician partner of mine, we started this clinic, Rocky Mountain Regenerative Medicine in in Boulder, and things really took off. There were certain things that I'm sure we'll get into that sort of drove me out of conventional medicine into this aspect of medicine. And here at RMRM, we specialize in really advanced uh, medical solutions, including things like stem cell therapy, hormone replacement therapy, peptide therapy, these are things that I'm sure you've heard of and, and certainly your audience have probably heard of. In, well, in well we one of them
1: I, I haven't. Maybe we can start with that. Uh, what What's peptide therapy? What's it used for?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of communication from a biological standpoint in our bodies occurs through interaction of proteins with other proteins, uh, proteins with receptors, for instance. And it turns out that you don't need the entire protein to carry out a certain task. The part of the protein that does the talking, that does the listening, is a very small snippet of the larger protein. And we call those little snippets, those those little areas, uh, we call those peptides. And the oldest and probably the most well-known peptide out there is insulin. I'm sure you've, you've heard of insulin. It turns out yep. that that particular peptide that diabetics inject themselves with looks quite smaller, quite different than the larger protein insulin. But since the inception of this field of medicine, we've gotten to know a lot of other peptides Beyond just insulin, one of the more recent ones that's in the news is referred to as semaglutide, and it's really starting to gain momentum for weight loss, for instance. And so there's a lot of news around it, but there's peptides out there for athletic performance, for sexual performance, for optimization of the immune system. And so, and so it, the field has really grown beyond just insulin and beyond just semaglutide, and but that's what peptide therapy is all about. So,
1: are peptides like rubbed on the skin, or how are they administered uh, when they're given?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. There's peptides that you can take orally. There are peptides that can be uh, applied topically, as you noted. Most peptides out there however, are injectables. And some of these peptides, depending on on what we're talking about, are injected maybe once a week. Some of them are five days out of the week. And some of them are injected every day. But it's really peptide specific. It's really objective specific. You know, one of our philosophies that, that guide us here at RMRM is to try to enable the patient's own biology to heal itself thereby reducing our dependence, our reliance on the more conventional medications that everyone's accustomed to, the more conventional surgeries that everyone's heard of, like knee replacements, hip replacements, uh, meniscectomies, et cetera, et cetera. And so we we dip into things like peptides, we dip into things like hormone replacement therapy, and and we're pretty aggressive about some of those things. And the same applies to stem cell therapy as well.
1: So, okay. So when you administer the peptides, I mean, what's, so semaglutide, if I have the name right, that's uh, like a new weight loss protocol, right? Like, yeah. how how is it given to people? And yeah, you know, what are the yeah. effects? Like, just for an example?
2: Yeah, so some of glutide, that class of peptides have been around for years, but some of glutide in particular was studied by a pharmaceutical called Novo Nordis. They did a study, I think it was about a year ago, where they looked at its utility in diabetic patients in particular. Uh, and it certainly helps in terms of improving some of the biomarkers that we track to assess one's response to some of these medications. Uh, when we're talking about things like diabetes. And it certainly improved those biomarkers, but it went a step further over the course of about six months the average weight loss in the patients who were using semaglutide was about 20% of their body weight. And so that side effect doesn't just apply to, to folks with diabetes, it turns out that non diabetics, if they take the same medication, they can also experience a similar amount of weight loss. Here's the catch, though, it's still a medication that's on patent. But because there was such a high demand for semaglutide in particular, there were other pharmacies known as compounding pharmacies that in the event of a, of a national shortage of a medication, those compounding pharmacies can sidestep this this patent and start to produce that medication. And so that's what they started doing. They started producing this medication. It was probably a good thing, to be honest, because with the medication, the way that it was being dispensed by pharmacies like Walgreens or CVS or what have you, the cost of this medication to diabetics was upwards of $1,000 a month, $1,000 a month. But because other compounders started to, to mass produce this medication, the price actually declined substantially. And so now people are, are, it's still expensive, don't get me wrong, but people are able to afford this medication, semaglutide. And so we work with compounders all the time. We work with compounding pharmacies. There's certainly actors in that sphere out there that probably don't do everything by the book. But if you've been in this field for as long as we've been in this field, you start to develop partnerships and you start to sort of parse out who's really good at their job and who's not. And reputation goes a long way. And we've we've established relationships with compounders that certainly do their due diligence in, in terms of minimizing uh, adverse effects from not just semaglutide, but a bunch of other peptides. And, and it's taken us years to establish those relationships, but they've been very fruitful in that these days we can then tap into those resources and make some of those peptides available for our patients, not just in terms of weight loss, but also look, our our motto here at rmrm is to live look and form better longer and we certainly try to espouse that in our personal lives and our professional lives and i think our patients come at it from the same vantage point they have the same objectives same goals and we want to be able to make some of these peptides available to them to, to optimize their lives so that way they're getting the most out of life they're not waiting for something to break down first before they seek medical attention they're really they're really dialed in in terms of optimizing their their health.
1: Maybe you should tell people you're 300 years old and look at you. You look great. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. well, um, so what are some of the other uses of uh of peptides? Like what are what are some of the other protocols or what are the reasons people come into the clinic primarily?
2: One of the one of the reasons peptide has gained a lot of notoriety outside of just weight loss and semaglutide and, and whatever else that we've been discussing is that there are peptides out there that really help with athletic performance, and so some of the peptides that we use to that end, you know, they really gained a lot of notoriety in, say, the Olympics, where some of the athletes were using it for athletic performance. And then they would, you know, organizations such as USADA or WADA would detect some of these peptides in their system. And then it would, it would, there'd be a splashy headline where such and such athlete was taking a peptide for athletic performance. And, but it turns out these peptides are not necessarily illegal for the general public. They just happen to be out of bounds as far as some of these sports are concerned, because they do provide an unfair advantage to these athletes. They're able to get in two, three workouts a day as opposed to just one. If they do injure themselves, their recovery time is abbreviated to such an extent that it gives them an undue advantage. But our most of our patients are not Olympic athletes. We certainly get that those caliber of athletes coming through our clinic. But for the average, quote unquote, Joe and Jane, they just want to recover quicker. Uh, They want to be able to play with their grandkids or play with their kids. They want to go on a on a ski trip somewhere that they've been looking forward to. Now they've got a knee injury, a hip injury, a shoulder injury to deal with. And they want to really condense the recovery, they want to heal faster. And so that's where some of the tools that we are really accustomed to using in our clinic, bring those tools to bear. And that includes peptides that mimic various activities in the body. And we have an element of a lot of these peptides already playing a role in our body. We're just concentrating it to a really high degree and, and injecting it and having our patients inject themselves with these, with these peptides. And look, the proof is in the, in the pudding. There's a reason why these peptides are quote unquote illegal in their respective sports. And we certainly see that in the lives of our everyday patients where they're recovering much faster. Another thing that we do is, is stem cell therapy. I know I, I sort of briefly mentioned that earlier.
1: Well, one quick thing, just to name names, do they have commercial names, the peptides that help you recover faster oh, from sure. injury That's- or sports?
2: Yeah, and and a lot of their, their, they're not brand names, but their exact name is BPC-157, for instance. There's another peptide. It's actually a combination of two different peptides, CJC and ipamoralin, that mimic the actions of growth hormones in the body. And as we age, the amount of growth hormones, the amount of several different hormones really declines. I'm sure you've heard the term menopause or menopause in in women. Menopause is kind of the, the, I guess, the comical alternative to, to be used in men. Like And it highlights the fact that as men, our hormones also decline as we age. And we can certainly replace it using testosterone in men or a combination of estrogen, progesterone, and and testosterone in women. But the same applies to some of the hormones that we don't typically associate with aging, like a decline in growth hormone, for instance, it's it's very, very common, it happens to a more severe degree, a more pronounced degree than even a decline in testosterone levels as we get older. And, and that can be supplemented through the use of CJC and Ipamorelin or Tazamorelin, And it basically helps guide your body to an anabolic state of healing and regeneration as opposed to a catabolic state where everything is breaking down, which is something that we typically associate with getting older. Before we continue, I've been
1: personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, Let's talk about the hormone replacement therapy, because this leads right into it. You know, I've taken like testosterone creams and injectable. Do you do much of that? Estrogen replacement, testosterone, yeah. testosterone. And is that, does it work better in conjunction with peptides or alone? Or are there new yeah, protocols? I mean, like, they're, what,
2: they're, what does it look like? they're different, but the same, like there's your different tools in the armamentarium of, of improving your health in general, but ultimately they work really well in conjunction with one another. So in terms of hormone replacement, like, look, if you've ever had your labs done at your primary doctor's office, you know, we, what typically happens is that those doctors, those patients will refer to the reference ranges on the right side of those lab sheets as a something to to help guide therapeutic decisions but the reality is those reference ranges pertain to the 3rd percentile all the way up to the 97th percentile of other individuals who've been who've undergone similar similar tests. And if you think about it in that context, you know, waiting for your testosterone level, for instance, to drop below the third percentile before you take action is really kind of comical, right? Like you wouldn't wait for your for your testosterone level to drop below the third percentile before you take action. But most people don't know that. So when they look at their testosterone level, estrogen level, progesterone level, DHEA level, et cetera, et cetera, they're always contextualizing it with that frame with that framework they're they're looking at the third percentile to the ninety seven percentile and what you need to realize is that insurance companies have had a large hand to play in drawing up those those reference ranges and drawing up this concept that we only need to take action if your levels are below the third percentile, but if you ask the average person well, on the
1: street, well, yeah like with any you know biomarker i've seen this if let's say the level is one to one hundred whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So if you're like at one, oh, you're okay. You're in range. If you're at minus one, oh, bad. Or if you're at 99, you're okay. But 101, oh, that's
2: bad. It's stupid. Yeah, it's 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 a little silly. And so we take a more, I don't know if aggressive is the right approach, or our objective is to optimize somebody's health. So if we have a patient before us and they're giving us all the telltale signs of a certain deficiency, and I know we've been talking about testosterone, so let's stay with that example. Um, if somebody's telling me, hey, I have low libido, I have no motivation to start exercising, I, I'm i really moody, you know, et cetera, et cetera etc, cetera, et cetera. and And then you check their levels. And it turns out that they're in the 10th percentile in terms of their testosterone level, it to me, it doesn't make any sense to not act. I mean, clearly, they're telling you all the telltale signs and symptoms of hypogonadism. And now you just check their levels and they're in the 10th percentile. So why would you wait until their levels drop down to the second percentile or the first percentile before you as a doctor would recommend action, it turns out testosterone is dirt cheap. So it doesn't matter that, you know, insurance is going to refuse to pay for it, because you're in the 10th percentile instead of the second percentile. A a lot of times I have these discussions with with my patients, and they're, you know, they're educated enough to do their own research. And they're luckily financially well off enough where they can say like, yeah, I, I want testosterone. Some of them have undergone recent surgeries, for instance, and maybe they're even a little bit higher, maybe their testosterone levels in the the 25th percentile, for instance. But ultimately, I want to optimize their body for overcoming that recent surgery, get them back into action as soon as possible, stacking the odds in favor of that surgery working. And so in that instance, it really behooves us to put their body in an anabolic state. And so there's the amount of nuance that we just went into with respect to just testosterone, there's similar nuance with respect to a lot of the hormones that we typically associate with women's health, like estrogen and progesterone and DHEA and pregnenolone. And, And we're equally nuanced in our decisions and our discussions with those patients. It's not unusual for us to meet with our patients for an hour for 90 minutes at a time, several times over the course of a year and really establish a relationship with that patient where we know what their goals and objectives are.
1: Um, there's a lot of clinics and mobile IVs you know lately to get B vitamins and hangover cocktails and things like that. Do, do you guys do that as well? Or is that like too basic and not targeted enough? And what are your well, thoughts Well all these Yeah, it's,
2: it's funny. Sometimes I'll go to a conference in Vegas, for instance, and you'll see these clinics all over the place or, or they'll, they'll bring their vitamin cocktail to where you are. And like, look, I get it in certain situations. Like a hangover is not a bad example. Like people will need, you know, replenishment of their vitamins and minerals. But it's just understand that it's a band-aid. Like what we try to emphasize with our patients are long-term sustainable solutions. I'm not opposed to somebody seeking, you know, a Myers cocktail, which is a cocktail of of various vitamins kind of packaged together given intravenously. I'm not opposed to that at all. But you want to get that patient to a state where, you know, it's similar with diet. You know, you want to, you want to institute something that they can do on their own. And so I am a big believer in oral vitamins, for instance, oral nourishment, optimizing one's diet, optimizing their exercise regimen, kind of coming at it from a holistic standpoint. There's no one magic bullet, unfortunately. So do we do IV infusions? Sure, we do. But we go a step beyond just the common vitamins. There's other infusions like NAD, for instance, NAD plus. Yeah, I've I've
1: had that. It makes you feel like really weird but then when you're yeah. done so like the next three days you just feel it's hard to describe but you just feel better and sleep better and you have more energy yeah. but it's just a very strange you know feature.
2: exactly especially when, when when it's going in people can feel nauseous and and that sort of thing so like look do we do we do it absolutely but For our, you know, at RMRM, we have a membership program for our patients where, you know, depending on which level of membership they are, uh, depending on what their needs are, what their goals are, what we discuss during our our meetings, uh, you know, it's not unusual for them to come in three times a year, four times a year for really extensive labs, the way that they've never undergone that depth, that breadth of of lab work with their primary physician and, you know, provide input as to what they should do from an actionable perspective plan standpoint uh, where they don't have to rely on on infusions you know sure if you really you know your output is great whether it's athletic or whether because you went to Las Vegas and and, and enjoyed life a little too much and you need you know a a, a recovery in terms of um, or a boost in your recovery like we can we can certainly provide that but the object of the game here is to establish really a long-term sustainable relationship with our patients and that involves instituting a plan that they can upkeep on their own. So if if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Well, tell me about some of the, the stem cell therapy now. That was the other thing that you had started on, but I, I took you in a different direction.
2: No, it's okay. Um, yes. Yeah, stem cells, you know, it's it's in the news. There's certainly a lot of good information out there and there's certainly information that's that's lacking in terms of accuracy. And so stem cells in short are the primary cells that are tasked with healing and regenerating our body. So should somebody uh, have a major surgery, a bowel resection, for instance, should they have a heart attack? Should they tear their ACL, the the primary cell type that's called on to help put things back together are your stem cells. But- just like peptides, just like hormones, just like a lot of things, part of aging is a decline in the number and the quality of your stem cells. And usually that decline starts in in one's mid 40s, maybe a little bit earlier, and you start to see a dip in the number of stem cells that one has. And that's usually it's something that coincides with injuries starting to linger around Longer and longer and longer. And so you may have noticed that in, in in yourself. If you roll your ankle, for instance, it's a very common injury. If you did that in your 20s, your recovery is probably much shorter than it is if it were to happen in your 40s or 50s or after. Those types of injuries. Oh, yeah. things, that- yeah. And they, they start to add up. They start to add up. And and what I always encourage my patients to do, for instance, is to exercise. And now you've got an injury that's going to keep you out of certain exercises for maybe two weeks. And then it's not like at the end of the two weeks, you're back in action. Sometimes it's just easier to not wake up in the morning and go to the gym. And so it might be a month before you get back on track. Well, that month just costs you a significant amount in terms of your cardiorespiratory reserve, in terms of your bone density, in terms of your muscle strength and it gives an opportunity for another injury to creep in and hold you out of action for, for longer. And it also has some repercussions as far as your metabolic health is concerned. So we really want to optimize our patients and get them back out, uh, recovered from injuries as quickly as possible. And so we do stem cell therapy to help, to help us along, along those lines. And so there's different methodologies of doing stem cell therapy. The easiest and, and one that I'm glad the FDA is really cracking down on is something called allogenic stem cell therapy, where you're basically taking stem cells from a different individual and injecting them into a recipient that is injured, or maybe they're injecting it for, for anti-aging purposes. The reason that I don't like that specific methodology of stem cell therapy is there's now really robust research that says if you inject somebody else's cells into a, a, an individual that is different from the donor of those cells, it can cause a trigger in the immune system, not not similar to say organ rejection. So this is a concept that's a little bit different. But more akin to a vaccination, for instance, you know, if somebody gets vaccinated, they get proteins introduced into their body, and that those foreign proteins trigger an immune response. And the idea behind it is so that next time if you're exposed to the real pathogen, your immune system will be prepped for it. Well, if you inject stem cells that don't belong to you, they're going to come along and, and, and bring along proteins that your immune system is not accustomed to seeing and you start to make antibodies against it. And maybe you do that a few times and it doesn't cause any major issues, but after a while, or maybe with the first time that you you have stem cell therapy in that fashion, your your immune system makes antibodies and then they misrecognize, they misrecognize your own proteins these are proteins that are native to your own body as being potentially foreign. And it can give rise to a class of diseases called autoimmune diseases. And there was a study from Duke that said the risk of that happening with stem cell therapy, where stem cells are being taken from one individual introduced into a different body uh, is about 2%. So 2% out of 100, two, two, two individuals out of 100, or one individual out of 50, who undergo Allogenic stem cell therapy have the potential of developing autoimmune diseases. And examples of those diseases include things like rheumatoid arthritis or type 1 diabetes, Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, et cetera, et cetera, uh, chagrins, lupus. These are all autoimmune diseases where your, your own immune system is attacking your own body. And, and just to recap, I think that happens. And there's different theories uh, about this, but that happens because your immune system encounters a protein that's foreign to your body. And in this case, the culprit is stem cells that don't belong to you, allergenic stem cell therapy. And so hopefully there's not a lot of clinics out there that do it, but unfortunately I know the reality is that that there are clinics out there engaging in allergenic stem cell therapy. So that's one one class, one category of stem cell therapy. The other category has to do with a different source and that's you, your own body. And one can acquire stem cells from an area where your stem cell rich, like your bone marrow, for instance, or your fat cells. And then those stem cells are concentrated and reinjected, reintroduced back into your body into an area where you just sustained an injury. So a typical scenario there is somebody tears their ACL, for instance and maybe they're planning on undergoing surgery maybe they want to avoid surgery altogether if they're planning on undergoing surgery they want to stack the deck in their favor and 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 really heal up faster they would come in we would acquire stem cells from either their bone marrow or their fat it turns out our reserve of stem cells is much richer was much greater in fat and the recovery time the downtime is much less if you acquire those cells via liposuction from fat as opposed to putting a hole in bone and acquiring those cells from the bone marrow so we primarily do fat harvesting but we can certainly do bone marrow harvesting as well and then we acquire those cells and reintroduce them into the knee in in this example and the idea basically is to take those cells from an area where you have lots of those cells and introduce them into an area where there's a paucity of, of those similar healing cells, those stem cells. Yeah. But, and, but
1: once uh, you get your cells taken out though, how much can they be cultured? Like if I do it once, I go into the bone marrow, it's pretty invasive. I don't want to be doing that. You know, very often, how many times can I use them if they're cultured and- expanded
2: yeah that's a really good question look at our clinic we have international patients they could go anywhere in the world to undergo stem cell therapy they choose to, to fly here you know we recently had a patient from australia so it's like literally you know if you look at a globe it's one of the farthest places from the u.s and they've been all over the world undergoing stem cell therapy and they've been to our clinic upwards of six or seven times at this point point. and they come here Because of the results, because of the results that they see. And when we culture their cells, I mean, some of our patients undergo an infusion of, say, 10 vials of their cells, an injection of 10 vials of their cells. And just to give you an idea, each vial that we use of of stem cells contains between 10 and 12 million stem cells. And just to put that in, into another perspective, you know, an average 40, 50 year old individual has about one to 2 million similar cells in their entire body. And you're taking basically, if you just take one vial, it's it's anywhere from five to six X compared to, to all the stem cells in their body. And you're concentrating, you're, you're injecting it into their knee. And despite using, you know, 10 vials a year of, of their own cells in that way, they still haven't run out of those cells. So so they'll last you for a while. And the nice thing is, as you're getting older, as your own native stem cells are declining in number, in quantity, these other cells that are cryopreserved, that are frozen, basically they're at their current age, they remain at their current age, and you're reintroducing those cells as they injure themselves.
1: I guess a question about that. What if someone has had cancer And they, you know, they've gotten a clean bill of health, they seem to be okay. But if, you know, they're worried if they, uh, you know, if they take out their stem cells now that maybe they'll be a problem or maybe they'll be cancerous, um, even if the cells being taken out are a different cell type than the cancer they had.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Look, there's, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity between cancers, even the same type of of, of cancer. So there's a lot, I think that's packed into that question. It's it's a good one. Don't get me wrong, but it really depends on, on the type of cancer that they have. And look, if, if you're, if you're not an ideal candidate, then we would tell you that. And there's been plenty of patients that we've turned away because they just don't have, you know, we don't feel comfortable with their medical, with, with their medical state. And so we'll, yeah, that's you know, what I was going to
1: ask you. Right. Is, I guess a broader question, maybe a better one is what contraindications are there for stem cell use. You know, if someone comes to you and they're XYZ, when would yeah. you say, eh, I recommend you probably don't do this?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we have this conversation all the time. You know, you mentioned cancer earlier. So if somebody has been started on chemotherapy, for instance, that's a huge contraindication. Why? Because chemotherapy acts, you know, you can think of it as a poison that's being introduced into the body with the hope of killing certain cells. And look, at the end of the day, they're toxic to a lot of other healthy cells and, you know, in terms of stem cell therapy, those types of medications, the chemo agents get stored in fat. And if you're going to go into the fat to acquire it, you know, it's a really bad idea to do that if the patient, you know, within the past year underwent chemotherapy. And so uh, for me, that would be a big no-no in in saying like, look, let's not do this. I uh, let's not do uh, stem cell therapy. Another example that I came across recently was somebody had a mitochondrial problem. They underwent, they were having certain symptoms that were pretty severe. They underwent genetic testing. They went uh, underwent cytological testing. And it turned out that there was a problem with their mitochondria, which is think of those as little batteries in all of your cells. And stem cells are no exceptions. Stem cells have similar mitochondria. And we turned them away. And we said like, look, if, if you've got this issue with all of your mitochondria, all of your cells, you're stem cells probably have the same issue. And it's probably not a good idea to undergo to undergo stem cell therapy. And so we turn them away. So it's really on an individual on a case by case basis. But those are the two common examples that come to mind. Another even more common one is, you know, we'll get these patients who are just kind of globally very unhealthy, right? Maybe they have type two diabetes and, and it's really out of control. Maybe they have high blood pressure and they're here because they want the stem cells to be injected into their knees. And I really discourage those individuals from undergoing stem cell therapy. Why? Because you're taking cells out of an unhealthy environment and then you're reintroducing them into the same unhealthy environment. And so the the discussion that I have with those patients is to really get on track as far as their global health is concerned. And then come back to this later. I currently have a patient who's based in New York. And, you know, he came to mind when you, you know, when I was answering your question, you know, he came to us a year ago and and wanted stem cells to be injected into his hip. Uh, he had injured himself. He had torn his labrum. He didn't want to undergo surgery. It turned out he's he's really, really unhealthy you know he's a high powered ceo has really been working like a dog you know and is very successful in his in his professional life but it's come at a cost of his personal life he hasn't really been minding his health at all and now it's time to to get back on track and so luckily we do have this this additional program at RMRM it's called it's a new, really a new company that we've started it's called longevity health and it really caters to our global clientele and in addition to extending the geographic reach of our clinic, RMRM, it offers just a luxury concierge medicine experience from start to finish. It includes uh, working with nutritionists, physical therapists, doctors, both local to the patient, as well as other experts as we need them across the country. And we've really helped this patient get to a point where he's far healthier than when he started a year ago. And now is a good time to go forward with harvesting his stem cells and addressing his hip issue. But, you know, a year ago, I really discouraged him from doing that. Like we really want to maximize you know, the chances of well, it's like a
1: Yeah, it's like a woman that wants to get pregnant and have a healthy baby six months or a year beforehand. Ideally, they would clean up their diet, their sleep, exercise and all that to getting... As good a shape as possible, so they can have a healthy baby. So it sounds like an analog to this.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not a mystery. It's really easy to understand. You know, it's. I think in the American healthcare system, the way that it's designed, everybody first they wait for something to break down, and then secondly they want the quick fix. You know, and it's. You know, a lot of the conversations that I have with patients is that that's not the way to go about it. I can't tell you how many patients we've kind of. You know so to speak, sh- showing them the door because their their objectives, their goals don't really align. Their philosophy doesn't really align with our philosophy. The goal is to get you healthier in general and and we'll deal with your knee pain, but we can't just you know, we can't treat your knee issue totally separate from the rest of your body. And I think what what most people are accustomed to is if something's broken, and it's orthopedic, you go to the orthopedic surgeon, or if, if something's cardiac, you go to the cardiologist, and that's it, like everything is compartmentalized. But what's really important is at the end of the day, it all comes back together to you and your general health. Um, and it's, I think, really beneficial to work with someone who has that type of an understanding. So
1: Okay. And then just as a quick recap, what are the top problems that people come to you for in their own words? Yeah. Yeah, If you could translate it into what that means clinically.
2: No, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we get certainly a lot of our fair share of orthopedic issues, and it's it's really one of my favorite things to to treat as well. You know, living in Boulder, a lot of our clientele luckily are fairly healthy, and so when they come to us, they're they're looking for a very specific you know assistance along a very specific line, and and typically that's orthopedic. We get a lot of athletes coming to our clinic. We've also had a lot of patients come to us with you know concerns about longevity, and I hate that word in some sense because I think there's a lot of snake oil out there and a lot of crystal waving out there when it comes to longevity. But if you really follow the science, it's really not that complicated. It's not that, you know, confusing. But I can see why somebody would be confused about that because there's a thousand voices screaming on YouTube and on Facebook about different, you know, items that have been popularized recently. And at the end of the day, really confuses the patient. So when they come to us, They want somebody to basically point them in the right direction when it comes to living healthier, a healthier life in general. So we get a lot of patients coming to us along those lines and we work with them, check their biomarkers, you know, really pin down what their goals and objectives are, and then hold them accountable, hold ourselves accountable as to whether or not we're making progress towards those goals. And so I would say longevity is is another common theme that patients will present to us with. And, And then optimization. Usually, you know, the patient will have gone to their primary doctor, maybe they've heard something on a podcast, and they want to discuss it with their physician. Uh, Maybe it's about hormone replacement therapy or peptide, some of the stuff that we discuss, for instance, and either their doctor won't know anything, or or they'll be a little dismissive of the patient's concerns. And so they'll come to us with uh, with questions about how to optimize their health. And, And really, conventional medicine doesn't cater to that need very well. And I speak as someone with an MD after my name, I went to medical school and residency, as I alluded to earlier, I'm not a chiropractor or a naturopath or coming at it from an outsider's Vantage point. I can tell you that conventional medicine, the way we approach things, is wait for things to break down before you offer a solution. But these patients really want to optimize their life and their health as much as possible, and that's not something that conventional medicine caters very well to. So I would say those are the three groups that that'll reach out to us for help.
1: Okay, very good. So for people that are close to you, I guess in the Boulder area, they can come in. If people are at a state or at a country, are you still able to help them at all with any telemedicine? Or yeah. All of this really has yeah, to be... Absolutely.
2: In- absolutely. We, we have big global reach to the point where, like I said earlier, we started a, a separate company that's that's currently you know, under the heading of Rocky Mountain Regenerative Medicine, but that other company is called Longevity Health. And currently, you know, the word is getting out there. We have a lot of clients signing up for Longevity Health. It definitely caters to a different clientele, that's for sure. But locally, you know, we have a lot of patients as well. You know, like I said earlier, our clinic is located in Boulder, Colorado. On the main drag, it's called Pearl Street. Our website URL is rmrm.com if, if uh, your audience wants to found, find out more information and they there's a way to reach out to us that way as well on our website and we'll go from we'll go from there so
1: well very good kashal thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it
2: thanks a lot have a good one if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes
0: you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs